This is the word of the Lord spoken for our benefit. Let's pray. Almighty Lord, we stand now under your word, given by the Spirit for the benefit of those who heard it long ago, as well as for ours. We pray that we would receive your instruction. Help me never to impose my own will on your word, nor let anyone who hears it lay it aside because of willfulness. We know that we're incapable of doing this, except that your Holy Spirit, who's been granted to us, will stand alongside and interpret and implant the truth and goodness of your will in our heart. And so we beg you, Spirit, to do so. Cause us to desire what our Savior desired, every word that proceeded from the Father's mouth. It's in his name, our Savior's name, that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. My voice broke a couple of times during that set of songs after the confession. And then Todd got up and read the 22nd Psalm. And I hope, I pray God that you will understand why that was after I'm finished talking about this passage. As you know, this is not something that I do very often. Uh, but this last, just Thursday, Thursday morning, I realized that this was one of the passages in the lectionary. And though I like more time to prepare, I asked Lance to let me take his spot today. I've always been a pretty good extemporaneous speaker. And I've thought about this passage a long time. But you're going to see me read this sermon more than I would like. I apologize. I hope it's not distracting. But this passage has such richness, has such illusion, has such a, a centrality even to the gospel message that I want to make sure that I don't miss something. Over the past 15 years, this passage has come repeatedly before me. So I've been confronted with the need to weigh it more than once. It's particularly come before me because of my history studies, interestingly enough. Because this passage was very central to the debates that were occurring during the founding generation. And that was my focus in my master's program. I have a very large book in my library, and Lois will tell you that room for very large books is at a great premium at this point. But it is about yay thick, and it is not very big print. And it contains sermons from America's founding period, a great many of which focus on this passage. I'll be honest with you, that volume contains passages that stretch Scripture to the vanishing point, that set my teeth on edge when I read them and how they've been bent to a political purpose. But it also contains sermons that ring true to the intent of Scripture as, as I believe it. Lately, just this past year, 
an even more useful book came to my attention called American Zion, written by a secular Israeli scholar. And it sifts not only these sermons, but the correspondence of the period, and comes to the conclusion that this verse was fundamentally in the minds of the majority of believers in Christ during the period, and not just because it was convenient as a rationale. They believed that the example of Israel's rejection of God's distributed family state in exchange for the concentrated power of kings was, as Scripture attests in Romans 15, written for our learning. Iran Shalev, the author of American Zion, really kind of shakes his head over all of this, that so many people could take something written for believers among his own people so seriously, even going to war over its supposed implications. So pervasive was this idea that even Thomas Jefferson and other nominally Christian or secular Christ-admiring founders had absorbed the idea. The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, describing its rationale, can be characterized as echoing Samuel's warning, saying, in essence, we must obey God rather than kings. Now, any of you who are afraid that I'm about to use a passage like this as a rant against the Department of Education or some such thing can rest easy. Scripture does supply us with every principle required for life and godliness, and there must be, in my view, a scriptural lens through which we view the world and our times, which will certainly color our view of political things. I also think that there's a strong temptation to bend scripture to the dominant political or social viewpoint rather than the other way around. But the way of life of the disciple of Jesus is to listen intently to the Father, letting the whole counsel of God inform us in everything we do. This morning, I hope to look behind this passage at the testimony of Scripture on which it rests. For me, this has allowed me to hear things in this passage that go far beyond politics, that convict me of the fleshly tendencies I share in common with everyone who has ever lived save one. Truly, everything that was written aforetime was written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We know that the only hope we have is in Jesus. So let's look at this passage in that light. Many of you have read an article that I handed out some time ago by the theologian Peter Lightheart, in which he observes that God did not set some arbitrary limit in the Garden of Eden, that he didn't set up an intentional temptation by forbidding the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He puts it this way. Before God told Adam he could not eat from the tree of knowledge, he had already offered all the trees of the garden for food. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree which is fruit yielding seeds, so it shall be food for you. Genesis 1.29. And from any tree of the garden you shall eat freely. Genesis 2.16. In offering food, Yahweh was offering more than food. He was offering the whole creation. He formed Adam placed him in the world full of delights and treasures and told him, it's all yours, enjoy it. God created Adam a hungry being and then set before him a world that, so long as he remained in communion with his creator, could satisfy his hungers. And then Lightheart goes on to argue in that same, in that same article, Adam's fast or Adam's fast from the tree of knowledge was not permanent 
eventually, Yahweh would have given him the fruit of that tree too. Knowledge of good and evil is used in Scripture to represent royal insight and judicial wisdom, as in 1 Kings 3.9. After long experience, mature people come to have the knowledge of good and evil they need to share in Yahweh's rule over creation. Hebrews 5.14. Naked and newborn in the garden, Adam was not ready for that fruit. He had to drink milk before he could digest meat. One day, though, the good fruit of the tree of knowledge would have been added to his menu. That rings true to me. What first man, Adam, chose was to be autonomous, to accept the lie that he could be as God determining good and evil. He did not need God's instruction. He didn't need seasoning and experience. He would not delay gratification. Bottom line. He did not trust God. The sin of Adam and Eve inevitably leads to others. We see their firstborn Cain upping that ante, refusing to give God the first fruits, the best and the choice. Genesis 4 uses very telling language in describing the offerings of Cain and Abel. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, while Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flocks. Now, I was taught in Sunday school that God was mad at Cain for bringing veggies instead of meat, and I could resonate with that concept. <laughs> but that is not the point of that passage. Cain was expressing willful autonomy. God, I will give you the leftovers I decide you should have. You remember God's judgment on Cain. The ground he cherished, which furnished his livelihood, would no longer respond to his effort and expertise because he had spilled his brother's blood upon it, forcing him, as a result, into a life of wandering. But Cain rebelled even against that verdict. Since God had forbidden anyone from killing him, he would cultivate a society, refusing to be a wanderer. In verse 17 of Genesis 4, the scripture says Cain was building a city, not exactly the occupation of a wanderer. Cain would concentrate people. His great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, would begin a concentration of power over others. While the Bible sees fit to contrast him with Seth, the child that Adam and Eve saw as a gift from God because their loss of Abel. Through Seth's line, Scripture sees fit to tell us that people began to call upon the name of the Lord, the very expression of repentance Peter used in the first gospel sermon. Meanwhile, the other line of mankind was concentrating both rebellion against God and using their creativity in the service of amassing power. The story of a flood shows God's disgust with this, but also his mercy in protecting a righteous remnant, which would become another major biblical theme. The subsequent hyper-rebellion against God would come through the line of Ham, who usurped his, father's, his father Noah's authority, and that's really the meaning of the covering and uncovering in that episode. 
as you look at the passage, and whose grandson, Nimrod, became a multiplier of cities. The offspring of Ham would finally concentrate on the plain of Shinar and their attempt to build the ultimate city of man, to use Augustine's phrase, so as to become gods, in effect, storming heaven and dethroning God, making a name for ourselves instead of naming the name that is above all names. And let's be clear, this was no hive mentality, no Borg for you Trekkies out there. This was a lead rebellion, a pattern we'll see generally associated with kings throughout the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, when God set the people of Babel against each other, we see nearly immediately in Scripture, after God had called Abraham to leave, or Abram at the time, to leave the greatest city of his day, the various kings of these distributed peoples engaging in war on that same plain, sweeping Lot and his family into the melee, forcing righteous Abraham to engage in defensive war to protect his family. It's on the return from this battle of rescue that Abraham meets the antitype of the brutal, rebellious kings of the plain. Melchizedek, king of peace, the meaning of the word salem, who is a servant of the Most High. And of course, as we know, the type of Christ himself. If you do a concordance or a Bible web search of the word king, you'll find this same pattern. The vast majority of citations will be those who are characterized as opposing God's people or committing leadership malpractice at the head of God's people, leading to apostasy, apostasy and division of the type of the kings of the plain. The scripture almost always uses the phrase, Judah or Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Only when a king is aligned with the Most High is there a positive reference. That's why David, for example, is referred to as one after God's own heart. But even when human kings are after God's own heart, the dangers of human kingship remain. A key element in the danger of kingship is the consistent presence of a state cult. In other words, religion is harnessed in the service of the king. We see its beginnings in Babel. Let's just not build a great society. Let's build a humanist religion. Our society will be godlike. When Moses comes into conflict with Pharaoh over the release of the Israelite slaves, who argues with the signs of the God of Moses? Our Bibles tend to use the word magician. But the idea of the ones hearing this text would have been demonic state cultic priests. Think also about, and this is quote from Scripture, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 who are in continuous but futile conflict with a man of the righteous remnant among the rebellious exiles, Daniel. Almost every historian of antiquity and Old Testament scholars like John Walton notice this phenomenon. S.E. Finer, the great British political scientist, writes in volume one of his magisterial, and it is magisterial, four-volume history of government from the earliest times, that the archaic religions, as they're called, are characterized by, quote, sacral or sacred monarchy supported by priesthood. 
And John Walton, who was focused on Egypt under the pharaohs, also comments on the deification of kings. The, quote, deity's living manifestation and the, quote, living image of the deity and speaks of, quote, a royal ideology supported by priesthood. The archaic religions are contrasted with the historic religions, as they're called by historians, the most prominent being Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which contain because of their focus on salvation the seeds of criticism and resistance to political power, but have nevertheless often fallen prey to temptation to shortcut God's providence by alliance with power, which always results in the glorification of the political realm at the expense of God's. Now, I've covered a lot of ground to build a context for this episode that's described in 1 Samuel 8. But before concentrating on it, let's trace one last bit of more immediate context on what's going on. God had told Abraham in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be enslaved for 400 years, quote, until the iniquity of the people of Canaan had reached the point of his judgment. God, in his mercy, would allow his chosen ones to be removed from the land and suffer so as to provide an avenue of repentance to those in direct rebellion against him. That's a merciful God. God engineered that a righteous remnant, Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, would protect the lives of his people while they were in that exile. But during those same 400 years, Israel, and Todd talked a lot about this in the Genesis passage, Israel would marinate in the cultural assumptions of the Egyptians. In their deliverance, we see the first generation constantly lose faith and seek to return even to their bondage. After God rejects that generation, we see the next generation prepare to enter the land of promise. Moses preaches a series of benedictory sermons that we call Deuteronomy before they finally enter under Joshua's leadership. In Deuteronomy 17, the Lord foretells this very episode we're discussing this morning. Verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the left hand or to the right, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The Lord knew the hearts of men, so he set the standard against which the king would be held. He had to be an Israelite. 
He was not to be a warrior. When you hear the words in Scripture, horses or chariots, they're always a reference to war and conquest. He was not to align himself with other nations, nor play other king games, building harems or self-aggrandizing wealth. The king was not to harness God as if he could, but was king by God's sufferance. At the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 33, 1 through 5, Moses, in the obvious control of the Holy Spirit, because he refers to himself as if as an outside observer, says this. This is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir among us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. And all his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you, when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, which is a word for Israel, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Did you hear that? There's only one ultimate king. And the people knew it. Now, hear this passage from the very end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, 25. The very last thing in that book, just a few generations later. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You hear the echoes of the garden? The people had rejected God as their king, setting the stage for what takes place in this passage. I've imagined our passage today as Samuel running after the headstrong Israelites, making the timeout sign, giving common sense, knowable comments about how kings operate. They build armies, they build harems, and they otherwise conscript people to service. But until just a few years ago, I had never made this connection. They defy God displacing him. When you hear that in this passage, when you hear that, the king will take the best. You hear echoes of Cain reserving the best for himself. When you hear he will take a tenth, you are hearing echoes of the God kings of the pagans taking the tithe that belongs to the Lord. In the demand of the Israelites, you're hearing echoes of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. Our king will lead us into battle. That demand also echoes the very first sin. Let's reach out and grab now what God promises us in due time if we will obey him. Israel's kings would do everything predicted by God through Samuel. Even God's man David fails when he follows suit with the standard practice of kings. Listen to this telling phrase in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And we know what happens next. Isaiah echoes Samuel in chapter 2 of his prophecy. 
For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. The ultimate echo in this passage, and the thing that struck me so hard when you guys were leading us in, in praise of the Lord and when Todd got up and presented that passage which was on his heart this morning, the ultimate echo in this passage is the most basic question for mankind. Will you trust God? Satan said outright that he couldn't be trusted. You will not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. And her first parents took his advice. Every episode of falling away in Scripture is based on lack of trust in the Lord. And if we're honest, we can sometimes identify with those in Scripture. Think about the looming threat of the Assyrians against Judah. Read 2 Kings 18. Syria was ISIS as superpower. But then read what Isaiah prophesies in chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. But when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Israel, the heart of Ace has, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Razin and Syria, and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, with Israel and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves. But thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razim, and within 65 years, Israel will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said... I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. The king and the people have turned from God. The false prophets of the royal court tell them, and this is all through Isaiah, tell them that they should make their own alliances. Alliance with God is an afterthought. Psalms 146 had warned both the people and the kings, put not your trust in princes. But in the midst of Isaiah's accusation, the Lord gives him this insight. Chapter 9. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Did you hear the echo of true kingship? The coming king would be the servant of the Lord in chapter 42. The spirit would be on him. He would rule in justice and righteousness, following the Lord in obedience, chapter 50. He would glorify the Lord and would himself suffer for the sins of the people. In chapter 52, it's said that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, all his bones were out of joint. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. In chapter 53, Isaiah tells us that the suffering servant of the Lord will accomplish the will of God, becoming, as the Hebrews letter tells us, a king for all time after the order of Melchizedek. In the gospel depiction of that event, hear the mocking challenge of the religious ones. And again, the allusion is in the psalm. Who were hedging their bets with Rome as their forefathers had done with the nations. We have no king but Caesar, they said in John 19. Even using Christ's claim of kingship over a kingdom not of this world to bring the wrath of Rome down upon him. And this is what they said. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. So for me... The question begged by this passage is always this. Will I trust in the Lord with all my heart, not leaning upon my own understanding and reasoning, which, like God's people in times past, can be corrupted by the ways of the world? Will I acknowledge Him in all my ways, trusting that He will make my path straight even as I falter? If you've been leaning on your own or the world's understanding, if you've been hedging your bets, keeping one foot in, one foot out of submission to God in Christ, here's what you should know. There's a way that seems right to man, but that way is deadly. If you've never submitted to Christ at all, you must know that He is your rightful King. And unless you repent of your sinful rebellion and submit to his kind rule, a rule that will not even break a bruised reed, Isaiah tells us. Unless you acknowledge that he is your savior and your king, you'll remain miserably in your sins and ultimately suffer the goal of your rebellion, dismissal from God and the deserved punishment of hell. Every Christian here has also deserved that punishment and would deserve it except for the blood of Christ. His righteous blood 
as second Adam, as true Israel, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In identifying with him in his burial and resurrection, pictured in Christian baptism, he will give you his spirit to guide you by writing God's will on your heart. Walking in that light, you will have fellowship with God, being changed from an enemy to a friend. If you want to know more about that, there are a lot of folks here who will be glad to talk with you about that. The Lord of heaven is more than worthy of our trust.